Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Susan Kalman, and welcome back to Susan Kalman's Mrs. Brightside. Thanks for downloading the show. You know, like, well, you and I, like, got our dream jobs, very happy, great colleagues, lovely partners, and not spending our time, like, live tweeting how much we hate some programme. No one's forcing us to watch. I watched something the other day that I really didn't like. Do you know what I did? I just turned over. Exactly. It's that easy, isn't it? I just watched another episode of Special Victims Unit, (laughs) CSM, Law and Order. Last year I spoke to eight people about their tricksy mental health and this year I'll be chatting to eight more. So they're like, what do you think people would shout out about? You always have a comeback to that. Yeah. And I remember I was like, oh, I always think I'll, I'll probably get like sexual heckles. And it was like, a, yeah, I mentioned the other day that I had written all these thing, comebacks to things and it just never happened. And then I started doing a bit of material about like, I'd written all these comebacks to sexual he- heckles, but I'd never got any. And then one man was like, show us your tits. <laughs> I was trying to be really helpful about yeah. it. I'm doing this because I want people to be more open about their mental health and I know sometimes it can be difficult to define what that means. So we're going to be having a frank and open discussion, no parameters, no written questions, no definitions and no pop psychology. It's important for you to know that these are not therapy sessions. I am not a qualified psychiatrist, no matter how much casualty I've watched. They're just honest conversations about what we think and feel about our own heads. In this episode, I'm talking to genuinely one of my favourite people in the world. It's Kerry Pritchard-McLean, about some pretty serious issues, um, but also the positive effects that can come from talking about them through comedy, because... uh, Last year, in 2018 at the Fringe, she did a, a show about a relationship that she'd had. Um, it was really unbelievable to be able to sit in a room with her and talk to her for for about an hour about everything. And um, I hope you enjoy it. Um, she's remarkable. We shared a lot. We laughed a lot. And it's a, it's a really great episode. So I really hope you enjoy listening. Welcome to the luxury porter cabin here at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. It's lovely, isn't it? It's hot. It's really hot. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I'm sweating slightly on the nape of my neck, <laughs> which, if it was a romance novel, would be quite sexy. Because you know what I mean? Oh, nape, yeah. Yeah, the, I like the it's name. It's an erogenous zone in it books, is. isn't it? Um, my favourite smell on the nape of someone's neck is digestive biscuits. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I like it. My dog's paws smell of digestive biscuits. Yes, my cat's paws smell like that oh, as well. Oh, thank God, because I thought it was like an illness. No, 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 like, no. Delicious, but no, it's, it's diabetes. It's really, it's really nice when they're, when they're asleep and you just go... Oh, and so nice. Biscuits. Um, uh, with me I have... Terry Pritchard-McLean. Who is a... Comedian. I don't like to define you. I want you to define yourself. Yeah, I'd say writer and comedian. Writer and comedian. Yeah. Sometimes people 
say to me, how do you want to be described? You know, when, they, yeah. when they're trying to be nice. <laughs> really sexy. You still a comedian? You <laughs> <laughs> still a comedian? <laughs> I mean, uh, in the broadest sense, I suspect <laughs> I probably am. And we are at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, so if there's any noise that you hear, it's because we're right in the thick of it mm-hmm. at the BBC tent beside a school <laughs> in Edinburgh. If you hear anything, it's art coming through the windows, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's actually better because we've recorded other ones and there have been various weird things happening, uh, mariachi, mariachi bands and things like sure. that. So um, we can have a deeply serious conversation about Thank mental health. Christ. Because there's not enough of it happening. No, about time some comedians weighed in on <laughs> mental health. I remember once I met a young comedian, she's probably famous now, backstage at the stand. And she said, I'm just really nervous because like, I talk a lot about mental health. And I was like, get in the queue, love. <laughs> <laughs> if you think that makes you special. <laughs> if you're a normal person, that, that makes you really, really weird in comedy. <laughs> you're at the Fringe, you're doing work in progress this year. Yeah, absolute coward. No. I love it. You're working things out with an audience. I am working things out in front of an audience, yes. I really like it. Because it's not, it's not rubbish. I know I've got some good routines in there, so I know, uh, like... If this bit's a bit eggy, don't worry, there's a good bit coming up in my head. And uh, the audiences have been really nice, because also the hard thing is, is we all know this, when you preview the show, getting it ready, you preview it to audiences that aren't fringe audiences. So you're trying to get, like, a fringe show ready in front of eight people in Blackburn who didn't know there was a comedy night on that night. And this is actually good, because I'm showing the audiences that will come and watch it and working out what they want from it as well. I did a town hall in Yorkshire somewhere in the middle of the day with no microphone and no curtains. Uh, uh, uh. And it was there, they were really proud. They were like, this is our first of our comedy gig. It was shocking. <laughs> so I was like, well, then, okay, this is going to be absolutely fine. But then I always think if it works there, then it'll probably work at the fringe. That's true. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If I can get away with it, with the trestle table, with the lager <laughs> at the back, <laughs> then it'll probably work. Um, there's a number of things I want to talk to you about, Kitty. Um, at any point, if you do not wish to talk about any of them, that's fine. It makes it sound like I'm going to talk to you about something very serious. That's yeah. not the case. But I just want you to know that you are free to talk about things or not talk about things. Okay. Okay? This is not a... I, I am not from The Guardian. I can't force you to answer my questions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said The Guardian. Like the, the mafia the that mafia. is The Guardian. <laughs> well, you always feel if they ask you a question, you have to answer. Otherwise, they might write something bad about you. That's true. I think they'd write something bad about me anyway. No, they wouldn't. Why would they do that? Um, You're right in their wheelhouse, aren't you? No, I don't think I am. Because no, I no, I don't think I am. I'm not getting into it. <laughs> <laughs> they reviewed me last year and they didn't publish it for legal reasons, and I don't. I never really found out what they were. Oh my god, that's the most mysterious thing I've it's ever real heard in my life. Mysterious, right? Shit. I know. I know somebody who works there. So do I. Actually, one of my best mates from school is a is a guardian journalist now. Yeah, I should just ask it, right? Just find out. I don't know if they cross pollinate because she. Uh, she edits and They'll stuff. have one big system. I used to be a temp. The security... <gasps> I used to be a temp. And the one thing I learned about being a temp in offices is they all say, ooh, good security systems. They don't. They don't. They're all the same, always the same bloody thing. And they'll have a thing saying comedy and double-click it and then you pop. That's what'll happen. Right, well, that's the text message that's been sent after this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I... Um, I have dabbled... Kidding. In different things to wear on stage. 
Okay. I have never been happy with how I look on stage. Really? Well, I've been happy but then wished I was different. Oh, but is that you or is that societal expectations? Possibly. So my strongest look was always the lesbian time traveller look. Absolutely love it. The tweed, the waistcoat, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But then I started to think I was playing into the stereotype of being a big dyke. Interesting. And then I started to second guess who I, what I was doing on stage. Because when I come out in that... Now, people at home will be listening to this thinking, oh, they actually pay attention to what they wear. I, I do pay attention yeah. to what I wear. Because I think when you walk out, that is, of course, the first indication of who you are. You have to pay attention because it's yeah. shorthand you're giving the audience about what you are. Yes. So you can't just wander out in anything. So I started to wonder if what I was doing, and it's because I got fed up with people saying I talked about being gay so often, even though I want to talk about it, but then I was being really... It's a very complicated thing. Yeah. That Whilst I think that's a very strong look, I was worried that it was... People wouldn't listen to me talking about something else because they just expected me to talk about being gay. Interesting. Wow. I know. (laughs) <laughs> one of the reasons I've stopped doing stand-up is I can't work out what to wear. Yeah. <laughs> you, I think, have an incredibly strong image on stage. How much thought goes into what you wear on stage? Well, so I always wear sequins, always. And that started because I, when I started doing comedy about two, three years in, you know, people always ask you, like, what's your comedy like? And I couldn't really say. I was sort of just sort of like, oh, I just sort of talk about my fat. I thought it was like, what's well, like everyone else's. And I realised I didn't have anything that stood out about me. And I always thought, like, I'm not very special as, like, an act. I would never be an act that would do well in competitions because I wasn't kind of quirky. So I was like, okay, well, I can control the way I look. And, and, and then I started to wear sequins all the time. And the reason behind sequins was I sort of look... I was, I was a bit bigger then as well, and I sort of thought that they looked like I'd made an effort, which was important to me, to the audience, because they all get dressed up and get a babysitter, so walking on stage like you belong there was important to me. I, I love drag, and I love, like, old-school, like, you know, like, working men's clubs, that kind of, kind of crappy glamour. And I was like, OK, it was sort of a nod to that stuff and music hall and sort of... And it was my way of going, well, they might not remember my stuff, but they'll be able to go, oh, the girl with the shiny stuff. And it happened really quickly. Like, you know, co- comedy clubs I play, I'd be like, oh, who was the girl in the shiny stuff? And you're like, oh, it gets to... And now it's just a thing, and now I would feel weird without it on stage. And also, because when I started doing comedy, I was 23, and before that, I used to go out like and get drunk three times a week and really overdress. I've always been someone who overdresses. I feel more comfortable overdressed than underdressed. And uh, I was just like, had all these great clothes that I could never wear because I wasn't going out anymore. I was spending all that money on driving to gigs in the middle of nowhere. So I was like, just dress like you're going for a night out. Like, no one can stop you. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, and then it's just got more ridiculous, I guess, as I've worked with other women who dress up on stage, like Jade Adams I do a show with, and we really both dress up for that. And also it's quite, as like a bigger girl, it's quite a political thing, I guess, to walk on stage and be like oh, I feel great about myself. And uh, I started to get quite a lot of messages from girls as well who aren't sort of very, very small and slim who were like, oh, I've started to take more of a risk now because... 
they you, it's you don't see many you know bigger women in like I'm so what I'm wearing now is basically a Sikh Quinn swimsuit that's what I've got on it's also not as hot on stage um, <laughs> and that I just think it's like I just it's how I feel comfortable and when you see someone else being comfortable you're like oh maybe I could maybe I would feel good like that it's a it's a very interesting thing because as a as a, a woman in the public eye, and I use that term quite loosely, in that I'm not Lady Di, but I am... But you were on Strictly. I was on Strictly. Like, you know, everyone's mum and dad knows who you are. Yes. Yes, they do. That's how I think of it as fame. Yes. Does mum and dad know who they are? Yes. Then they're famous. I didn't think when I started, because I started off at the Stan Comedy Club on a Tuesday night red raw, that... It was probably... I'm glad I didn't know how much people give a fuck about what I look like. Because mm. I probably wouldn't have done it. Really? Yeah, I think if I'd known that there was a period where I had to really get used to people commenting on what I looked like. Or my voice. Oh, really? Yes, I, I received a lovely tweet once from someone saying, it's lovely to hear a working class accent on Radio 4 because I'm Scottish. <laughs> I'm very not working class. Um, my, my accent... People comment on my voice, my accent. Uh, there's a number of people on various internet forums who hate my hands and what I do with my hands. I move them too much. I'm too expressive. I think if I'd known any of that stuff, I probably wouldn't have done it at that point. Now I'm fine with it because you develop a way of dealing with things. But there is something quite... What you're doing, and this is tied up in it, is you're saying, you're right, you don't see a lot of... I don't think you're bigger, but we are bigger in terms of yeah. the norm going, there you go, that's me. Yeah. Because there is a tendency to hide. It's that whole thing about taking up space and, like, those people on forums talking about your hands, what they don't even know about themselves is what they actually resent is a woman and a gay woman being there and having to look at them. But they can't they can't intellectually deal with that. So what they say is, oh, she moves her hands too much. Because really, who cares about that? And what they say is, I don't like you taking up space. That's a space I don't want you to be in. But they can't possibly deal with that. So they find some other tiny thing to pick on. But it's, in, it's interesting that you start off by doing comedy because you want to do comedy. So I wanted to be Victoria Wood. Yeah. That's what I wanted. And then it develops into knowing that you have the power of words and a little bit of influence. Yeah. And it's when you start thinking... Oh, I've got some people listen to me. You start thinking, what can I do with this yep. thing that I have been given? And for for many of us, I think dealing with misogyny and all of those kind of things and how we're treated is one of the biggest things that we try and in all of our various different ways because we all do it differently that's one of the main things I think we all try and deal with, isn't it? Mm, definitely. You, yeah, you're totally right about that thing about you given handed a platform and sometimes quite young you know you're in your 20s doing stand-up and and then you I guess you make a decision about what you're going to do with that whether you're just going to tell jokes or whether you're going to go okay the people are listening I should say something and not just talk and there's no wrong or right I don't think but you're totally right as in as soon as you're position in a position of authority as soon as you wander on that stage you're the only one you're amplified all the lights are on you and it just adds this extra layer of scrutiny about everything you're right your voice I mean I like quite complicated I've got a joke about it now because so when I talk about Welsh stuff on stage my accent changes to being Welsh when I talk about Manchester stuff it goes more Manchester 
like I'm probably more well-spoken than I am on stage because I've always had like a weirdly neutral accent. I never sounded like the people back home in Wales. None of my friends did, even the first language Welsh people. So people would be like, you don't sound very Welsh. I've had my whole life. And and then in Manchester, we're talking like this and doing quite high status stand-up as a 23-year-old. They did not want to hear that at the Frog and Bucket. So I would sort of like, I guess, Manchester my accent up. So now as a stand-up, it's quite northern, more northern than I am off stage. It just flits all over the place because it's you trying to do what you can to survive and yeah. to get them to listen ultimately. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it must be so... It's mad that it's like... It's even a consideration that you're like, oh, what do I wear? So the first thing they think of me is going to be this and then that influences every joke they hear. I can't even imagine the added layer of being, like, of being gay as well, like a gay woman. Like, I don't even know how to navigate that. But as your as your um, stock rises, because you're appearing on things now, you're doing lots of stuff. You're absolutely on the up, and you are encountering that change because there is a change in career. So you're at the fringe, you're doing well, everyone knows who you are, and then suddenly you start getting those opportunities to be on the television, to be more mainstream, you're seen by people. You do have to change yourself a little bit, I yeah. think. I think the, the most obvious example for me is, so I've done How I Got News For You twice. The first time I did it, I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this, this is amazing. And I was just really like, because you know, I'd heard some things about the experience of recording it. And uh, so I was like, I'm just gonna make it fun because this is my Make-A-Wish foundation. The fact that I'm here is great. So I was like yeah. laughing at all the jokes, having a right time. My laugh started trending on Twitter because people hated it so much. I got. I got email. I had to take my email address off my website because people were sending me abuse, sending my agent abuse. Twi- I had to hide all my Twitter notifications because it was principally men who were like, she is appalling, like her laugh is going through it, all this kind of, just my laugh, my laugh, my laugh. And again, I know it's like, what they can't deal with is a woman sat somewhere they see themselves being. They cannot deal with that, especially a young like woman who's got whatever this accent is and is like laughing, like doesn't care. Um, they were fuming with me, absolutely fuming. And that's when I changed everything. And then the second time I went on there, I found myself stopping myself laugh. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, they're never gonna like you. If I laughed less, all they'd do then is go, she didn't say anything, she's not funny. Yeah, or, or exactly. And I think I am, um, I always laugh. I love, I love nothing more than being on a show with funny people. Oh yeah. And laughing. And I remember someone said to me once, gosh, why are you laughing at everything? And I was like, because I'm on a comedy show and I'm I'm with amazing people and they're making me laugh. Exactly. I'm trying to write professionally funny people. Why wouldn't I be laughing? But some it but you're right, if they didn't like your laugh, they wouldn't like something else about you. But I think it's that that thing of realising that being somebody who I, I think as a gay woman I specifically terrify some men. Because there's, like, I'm kryptonite. Yeah. I don't want to fuck them. I don't want to listen to them. I don't want to have anything, you know, anything to do with those men over there. And there's nothing they can do. There is no hope. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm an intelligent woman who doesn't want to fuck them. And I think for some men, that is an almost incomprehensible situation. Yeah. And I think there is that thing of us and other comics that we know who go onto the shows and just are I just do their thing without apologizing for it yeah is terrifying for some people because they want us to be slightly cowed mm. 
but because there's a generation of us, I think, who don't do that, mm. I think that's when we get this odd level of spite. I mean, yeah. I would call it spite more than anything of people who just can't understand why we're there. Yeah. And it, well, it's also like this weird sense of entitlement that you get. You get it a bit from Radio 4 as well, like listeners, that they're like, you know, they're like, I don't like this thing that you did. And it's like, I don't listen to Radio 4 and expect everything to be for me on there. So why do you think you own this? And especially the BBC, because people pay for, you know, they're like, this is my, I'm like, not everything's for you. What world do you live in? Like, you know, you wouldn't go to a restaurant and be like, I don't like everything on this menu, so I'd like to make a complaint, please. <laughs> like, you just wouldn't do it, but people do it for some reason with the BBC. Mm-hmm. And it's this fury and this sort of, like... And, you know, it all comes... Also, no one who's smashing their life tweets abuse at strangers. That's the other thing. Yeah. No one who's, like, really happy and achieved everything they want to has got the time or inclination to... to sweet, like... You know, like, well, you and I, like, got our dream jobs, very happy, great colleagues, lovely partners, and not spending our time, like, live-tweeting how much we hate some programme. No one's forcing us to watch. I watched something the other day that I really didn't like. Do you know what I did? I just turned over. Exactly. It's that easy, isn't it? I just watched another episode of Special Victims Unit, (laughs) CSM, Law and Order, because I love Mariska Hargitay. So I just watched another episode of uh, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit. It's um, it's fewer buttons as well. It's one button to turn over, isn't it? It's an awful lot to type out. (laughs) Absolutely. When you're um, on stage, and and one of the reasons I talk to comedians about using mental health as a large umbrella is that we often write about these things and we talk about them very publicly in our shows mm. um, whether or not we tell the whole truth in our shows or not that's our decision because when we talk about we do a monologue let's face it we do a 55 minute monologue yeah of what i think i want to tell you about mm. i like it because i am never more honest than i am on stage yeah i agree with that yeah when because I don't know exactly your Edinburgh or your show trajectory when was the first time you did a show where you did that kind of expression situation I think from the off because I was so sure with my like my first show I was aware of like I, I wasn't one of those mad people who's obsessed with nominations and awards and things but I was like because I was based in the north I was like this is my chance to turn up and show everyone what I want to be and uh, so my first show was about structural racism and sexism, uh, being a chick doing comedy on like the circuit. Because a lot of the people I think who talk about being a woman in comedy, I'm like, you haven't played the club. Like, why are you having that conversation with me? I've never seen you in these rough clubs. So I was like, I feel like I'm placed to do this. And I had, uh, a, I guess the crux of it, a couple of the conversations and I had loads of science to back up because people would give their own anecdotes. I'm like, oh, I've got a scientific study that proves that you're wrong and that it's, it's rooted in prejudice and the idea that women aren't intelligent enough to be funny. That's where it comes from. Um, and that women, uh, you know, all this stuff, like if, if you think a woman has written a joke, you don't think it's as funny as if a man has written it. So all this stuff that's, you know, just rooted, it's hardwired in us. Um, but I told a, a true story there that happened just before the fringe, actually. There was one there from when I first started about, but about how a guy... I've got to use some quite spicy language. Is that all right? Yeah. Um, he... I had been comparing, had a lovely night, and I brought him on stage. And he said, give up for your compare. I got my name wrong. Uh, and then said, uh, she's a fat bitch, isn't she? But you know what? I always fuck fat bitches like her because they can take a punch. And yeah, and it <laughs> right, was like... Okay. And everyone right. goes like... Phew. And I'm like, but that's my... That's like... 
it's not doesn't happen every day but like that's just a thing I have to deal with in my job and I don't think people realized and trying to make people feel like imagine knowing that it's even a, a risk an opportunity or not opportunity but you know like a uh, a thing that might happen mm -hmm. uh, you know like a, an outcome that mm -hmm. could happen from doing your job I don't think people realized because we're all just clowns but like there's this other thing you have to navigate which is structural sexism and I compared it to how I like I'm, I'm racist like like about how I love jazz music and soul music but only about black people <laughs> like not interested if it's by a white person but that's racist um, and so that's what I talked about in that one uh, and I just from the off was like that's the sh those are the shows I'm interested in the hook and that's the difficult bit like I can write jokes I know that so here's the difficult bit is telling something that's happening that's tricky and making it funny and bringing yes because it's the difference between a TED talk or a lecture yeah. and a comedy show yeah and it's what I mean it's what Hannah Gadsby talked about in Nanette it's what a number of us have always struggled with which is and sometimes you get it wrong in Edinburgh because you have this theme and then you forget the, the, the funny bit because the, yeah. the glorious point is when you mix the two together, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. My second show was about uh, a true story about volunteer. It was sort of the two prongs of it was about how I'm not going to have biological children, not because I can't, but because I'm, I want to adopt and all the reasons why and how millennials have stopped breeding and they don't really know why, so I was talking about that. And... Um, and then the other strand was this through line about, um, it was a true story about me volunteering with a young person in my local community and how I find out that they're being groomed, which is true, and that they're in a relationship with a member of staff where I was volunteering. And so that is like knowing you have that story to tell, the responsibility to someone else's story, and that you're going to have to guide them through a heart-wrenching moment as they feel like I did when I found out because you fall in love with her and our relationship and that's the thing is like and then how to responsibly bring people out of that and then the third show is the reason I'm taking a year off was uh, I was I was in an abusive relationship where I was being uh, gaslit as well as other things for a long time and it was telling that story and I that way that I did it it changed at the end because I was like I think this is right is I tell the audience that I was cheated on and then, and so all these jokes, all these jokes about that. And then I say, actually, I was lying about that. I was just telling these jokes on stage. It wasn't true, which is sort of how it happened. I'd written all these jokes about being cheated on, just because it felt right. And then, uh, and then was just called out on it for being a liar. And then, of course, it turned out it was all true, and that I wasn't mad. It was another part of the gaslighting, and that was an intense month of very tearful. Ninety-nine point nine percent women after every show being like that's you just told my life and then touring it and then messages and that felt like the weight of that the responsibility to people's experience because you stir I mean to keep it good after sort of a week I knew the show and I started to sort of disengage with it and it start it started being like an a very bad actor you know so I had to force myself to feel what it felt like when they were saying you're insane, this isn't happening. You know all your friends think you're mad. And like, I had to make myself feel like that, otherwise it was just a bad play. So forcing yourself to go through that every night was exhausting. So that act of, and it is difficult, because in order to audiences, and this is going to give credit to audiences, know if you're, if you're there. Yeah. Seeing the things. Yeah. They can tell if you're just... It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. So, and you can, that connection, and genuinely the reason why stand-up is so 
gorgeous for me is I could tell from the audience coming in, right, okay, I can tell oh, what they like. Oh, and you could hear them. Oh, they're going to be good. Oh, they're going to be tough, whatever you can tell. Yeah. Then you go out and you feel them and you feel it. And they're there and you're there. And the best shows are where there is, it is, it is sexual because you're in a rhythm with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is beautiful. And they can tell when you are simply saying things. Yeah. And when you're trying to do a show about something that's difficult, it is easy to switch off. Yeah. But then it's not the same. But it's painful. So every night I did a show that was particularly personal to me. I was exhausted afterwards. I was thinking, why the was hell did I... Equal marriage. Equal marriage. Yeah. Why the hell did I write a sodding show where at the end of every fucking show I'm in tears because I'm basically pleading for my rights. And then people were really affected people. But it's tough. It's emotionally... You are essentially telling me your most personal story again and again. And I go, can I hear it again, Kerry? Can yeah. I hear it again, Kerry? Tell me again, Kerry. No, tell me again. Like, you mean it? Tell me again. And it's a very demanding thing, isn't it? Yeah. It is, but, like... Yeah, it is. And the night that my dad was in, he didn't know half the stuff that had gone on between us. Now, how so, did that feel? How did that feel when you knew he was in? So whenever he's in, like, he's the proudest man in the world. He's adorable. He's in all, seen all my shows. And he knew what it was about, roughly, but he didn't know, like... Loads of people, you know, only my very closest friends who saw what was happening knew what was going on. And there's just one bit where I talk about, I hadn't ever talked about it on stage or publicly before, but as a result of this bit, feel like I was fully insane after eight years of this behaviour, I started to, um, my, I started to have panic attacks for the first time in my life and I started to self-harm. I was pulling my hair out and doing other things as well. And I'd never had that conversation with my family because my word, I was very embarrassed by it. And then to take it on stage, and that's how he finds out, just as I was talking about that. Justin, like, not even crying, like, sob it, like, could barely speak because I was so embarrassed that it, I'd let it happen to me, you know, and all that stupid, all that shame comes up, all, you know, things that you're also then, and then ashamed of myself for feeling ashamed because I know it's not a weakness, it was only that I just loved someone was, and was stupid, like, ignored the signs. And it's, it was, it was horrific, and he was, because he got upset as well and then that sets you off but just tearing your heart out like that but I sort of one part of me is like I don't know how to do it any other way and it'd be good like it has to feel it otherwise I've it's, it's just like you know audiences can tell like you say just like if you don't really believe in a joke or if you think it's a bit too edgy Absolutely. they know mm -hmm. they know until you start selling that joke like it's funny they don't laugh mm -hmm. I just don't know how to do it any other way. And also I have to like, I just find it edifying. The interesting part for me in, our, in shows is like, how do you make the unfunniest thing funny? Yeah. How do you talk about the stuff that people aren't talking about? Because we've got such a gift in that comedy is incredible and that you can have these really difficult, complicated conversations really quickly and far easier than like, than your show about equal marriage is a much more important tool than someone sitting down and dryly explaining why they should have the right to love someone because they're like yeah they've all heard that already yeah they've heard absolutely. that yeah but changing minds and like winning hearts is absolutely something comedians can do it's funny because embarrassment is a word that's not often used enough i think when talking about depression mental health and everything the embarrassment you feel yeah. and it's funny whenever i never talked to my parents about anything because i was embarrassed yeah and actually 
embarrassment and shame are slightly different things. But being embarrassed at my own reactions and behaviours and everything else is something that is a constant. Whenever I've spoke to... I often don't tell my therapist things because I'm embarrassed. Really? I'm embarrassed. I don't want to say things out loud because this, when I think of them, they sound stupid or they, they sound awful or they make me sound like a terrible person. Yeah, yeah. And so embarrassment and shame are a preventative... And that that's why I like comedy because we can turn that embarrassment into a joke which makes it less embarrassing. Yeah, it gives you some ownership over the thing yeah. again, doesn't it? I In my show, because what I didn't want to do was go, and I was a perfect girlfriend and everything, because I wasn't. Like, <coughs> So I was, I would, I had loads of stories about how I was just like, you know, a nightmare to live with and I would do this, you know, it's a story I've told on my podcast about how I used to try and get him to take me to the toilet like I had some kind of, you know, like, like I was paralysed. And I tell that in the thing and be like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, the whole point was like, don't who am I to go? And I was a perfect girlfriend. He did all this stuff. It was like, I deliberately went, look, at, look I'm a complicated, like you say, embarrassing myself. So it didn't seem like a one-sided... And I, you know, deliberately went, this is what he had to deal with, but this is this is what was going on the other way. Um, but, yeah, I think there's something useful in embarrassing yourself on stage. Like, it's so hard with, um, you know, people are like, you can't talk about anything. It's like, you absolutely can. It just has to be funny enough. And the victims need to feel fair. And if the victim is me, it's always fair. Because it's always, it gives me an ownership of said thing. That was something I didn't really nail early on, because you talk about things. And, uh, uh, you know, I'd make, like, a joke about my weight or something. And audiences would go, oh, because they obviously weren't getting from me that I was like, oh, no, this is an empowered... Like, I don't really think that, and that's why this is funny. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I just think it... it, it this Because there's so much that's out of our control. Our bodies are having conversations for us all the time. You know, our accents are all these invisible signifiers, whereas, like, stand-up is, is all with you. You take it all back because you have all those words. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I have such a difficult relationship with my persona on stage as a result of learning partly as a result of being taught uh, by old-school comics how to behave. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when I first started, 2003, I think it was, and this is no disrespect to them at all, um, the fringe wasn't really what it is. It was club sets I was after. That's what you wanted. You wanted to get your 5, your 10, your 15, you wanted to headline. And I remember being told, the most important thing is tell a joke about yourself before the audience tells it. So if there's something about you, make sure you make them laugh first about it 
before they do. Mm. So as a result, quite heavily self-deprecating, I would say pretty nasty stuff about myself was what I would go with and everyone would laugh. And I do think that that's changed, not just because of Gadsby's Nanette, but I think in terms of me thinking, and I'm, I'm how many years older than that now? Am I 15 years older, whatever, 16 years older? I look back and think, God, I was really fucking... If someone else said that to me on the internet, I'd say you were a fucking bastard. But I think I was I was being nastier about myself than almost anyone else has been because I was told that's what women did. Hmm. We were shit about ourselves. Yeah. Because heaven forbid... Yeah, yeah. We walk out on stage and go... I always remember Kevin Bridges, lovely Kevin Bridges, this is not nasty about Kevin Bridges, used to walk out on stage, arms aloft, going, yeah, it's me. Right, and he would just walk out, Billy Big Bollocks, there you go. Yeah. And I'd never seen a woman do that. No. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We would never walk out and go, yeah, bitches. Yeah. You know, and I remember three years ago, last time I did the French three years ago, Pleasance, whatever, sold out the whole run in advance, four extra shows, should have been strutting through the Pleasance courtyard like the absolute cock of the walk. And instead I was going, oh God, I hope I'm doing okay at the fringe. And it's a real struggle. I I feel the struggle with complying with the norm of a woman being... Yeah. Demure and small and knowing her place. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally, and I, I came up through, I think, a similar thing of, yeah, you're told that, like, what do you think people would shout out about? You always have a comeback to that. Yeah. And I remember I was like, oh, I always think I'll, I'll probably get, like, sexual hackles. And it was like, a, yeah, I mentioned the other day that I had written all these things, comebacks to things, and it just never happened. And then I started doing a bit of material about, like, I'd written all these comebacks to sexual ha- heckles, but I'd never got any. And then one man was like, show us your tits. <laughs> I was trying to be really helpful about yeah. it. But it was just that thing of, like, oh, no, this is... Also, I'm bringing all my own bullshit on stage here about, like, what are the worst things I think about myself? Well, they must think it. And I'm like, of course they don't. And if you just... it's. I think things are changing. I think it was like that because you, you know, you're definitely only going to be the only woman on the bill. So yes. that immediately is something to navigate. Yes. Whereas that's not necessarily the case <clears throat> now. And um, so I think the landscape is changing. And I would hope that it's easier to come up as a, as a, you know, a woman doing comedy. Um, but yeah, just that thing of being like, what are, what are all these horrible things I can say about myself? So they, so they know I'm funny because I'm aware and that I can laugh at myself. And it's yeah. like, I mean, they've just gone on and laughed at everyone else. Can't can't I be like the boys? Yeah, is there a possibility? I mean, it is, it's very much one of those. And even the way that men were standing on stage, microphone still in the stand, large stand, our legs open, there they were. Even better, I've just realised I've never seen a woman do this, go on stage with a stool and just sit back and sit on the yeah, stool yeah, yeah. and do I've it. I've never seen a woman do that. Yeah, it's all male comics, I can think, that do that. Yeah. Should we do a show next year where we... Yeah, sit on stool. just sit on stool. I mean, everything I've got is so high cut, you'll absolutely see my funny <laughs> if I sit on a stool. I mean, they might get us more stars <laughs> from the Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> but when you did the show last year, and I know... It was last year, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. you did the show last year. I don't know it was difficult for you. I know it was difficult for you because you did the show and it was written about in the press. Yeah. And that was really tough for you, wasn't it? 
Yeah, that's the reason why I I would come back with another show this year, but I wasn't ready to because like it's not just making your show up here. It's it's all the other the easy bit is writing comedy and doing a show every day. It's the I think it's the extraneous variables I find difficult, which is press mm-hmm. and uh, well principally press and how you navigate that. And and this is so I had the the show was the fifth best reviewed show of the fringe it's my best ever reviewed show it was it was all fives and fours i think got one three from some cunt but like pretty much (laughs) all fives and fours um from some silly man Um, and uh so so now uh, but they so it was it was a very vulnerable thing for me as a very on stage empowered in like someone who's gone i'm smart just so you know has always like set that stall up it's like i'm intelligent i'm here i'm not going to apologize to go on stage and go just so you know while all that was happening i was in an abusive relationship and i wasn't able to speak out about it and when i have speak, spoken out about it no one believed me because i was empowered and intelligent so i must be lying so like that's what i spoke out about and how much how like the guts it took to step up and do that to also like dispel everything I'd created as a persona on stage and the one thing I didn't do because of I, I, I changed everyone's names in the show including the person I was in a relationship with and had articles taken down that had named that person in the past and and I said to my PR of anything don't make sure that they don't name them because this isn't about that individual this is me telling my story and i had just been made to feel through various things and a lot of it being my own stress mentally unsafe and i was like this is the last thing i've got is not naming them like let's hold on to that yeah it's the control thing it's the one bit of control exactly that you have in a situation where you felt very out of control because you were being manipulated yes this is the control you have yes and it was like this is the this is the thing. There's my only line in sound. And then two publications named them, and in fact one of them linked our review. In fact both of them did a thing where they were like, here's one side of the story and here's the other. And I have felt so violated. That's the only word for it. Violated of being like, you watched me tell that story and pull my heart out, and then you've used it as a cute angle, when it wasn't. It was. I felt like I was never treated like a woman speaking out about abuse. I was, and like, bearing in mind, I kept the worst different elements of abuse off stage. Yeah. Because I'm like, I can't make them funny. Yeah. And so, like, how dare you? How dare you do that? And it was, I just thought it was disgusting. Also, like, that, like, the person that I was in a relationship with, I don't want them being named in that context either because I know what it's like up here. And, you know, however I feel about them, I know that would have made their run, it's like mentally worse. I don't want anyone to suffer any more than we have to up here. Like, so, you know, there's a lot of things I wish on them, but not, like... Well, I don't, like, you know, each to their own. Like, I just didn't want to be the person who's then responsible for them. It doesn't matter what it is, you just didn't want that to happen. Exactly. That's the thing. You just didn't want that to happen. And they did... Yeah. They did it. So now I think I'm, like... I think I'm not having any reviews next year. And that, that will affect my sales. But how I see it is, like, I cannot trust you to be responsible with my story... So I'm talking about something even more, like something really difficult the next show, not to do with me. Um, and like, I can't trust you to be responsible for this, so you're not invited to the process anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you, there was a tester, took the most vulnerable part of my life, and you trampled through it because you thought you'd get some more clicks. So there you go, We're not, we don't have that conversation anymore. And, and that's it. And yeah, I'll probably take a hit on sales, but I would rather not 
put myself or anyone else I talk about. There's an extraordinary view up here, I think, and it's only when you're away from it for a while you see how extraordinary it is, that we, as the people who write these shows, often deeply personal shows, which what we're trying to do is connect with people. So the reason I do The Fringe is not to make money, because, Christ, there's easier no. ways of making money. <laughs> if I wanted to make money, I'd get a Saturday job in my local Morrison's <laughs> and I'd make more money. I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing that because I want to tell a story and I want to connect with people. But there's often, there's no protection, I think, sometimes for us because your PR say, well, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this. And actually, so doing a show about depression, for example, and anxiety, and then having to do a cute little article about, here's 10 comedians doing shows about depression. And I think almost it's become so monetized and so um, glib. Mm. What's your show about this year, Kerry? And actually, your show's about something deeply personal and horrible and terrible. Well, can I tell you the true story behind that is I didn't want it put anywhere that was about gaslighting because for a start, it was a spoiler. Like, I, the structure is I gaslight the audience and then reveal what's been happening. They need to go through what I went through where they believe that I'm a liar and it's yes. all in my head. Mm-hmm. So it was a massive spoiler. And then, and I also didn't necessarily want the person I was talking about knowing because I hadn't worked out whether I was going to talk about it yet and I didn't necessarily want them like because there would be some fallback on me and then the Guardian ran a preview being like go and see the show it's about gaslighting and I said to my PR I was like where's this come from because I've not said anywhere it is and they went oh well I sat down and spoke to them and like my PR's absolutely lovely but was like and you know if I didn't say it's about gaslighting it's just another show about a breakup and I was like the show is not about, and this is the other thing, people are like, it's a show about a breakup. The breakup is one line in it. The story is about abuse, but to be, I think that's a woman thing, to be then go, well, she must be talking about something little and fluffy like a breakup, and it's like, it's barely mentioned. I think I go, in 2016, we broke up. That's it. That's as much as, it's not about a breakup, it's about the abuse and how yes. it escalates. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be told that, like, well, there's no hook unless I tell people it's about gaslighting. And it's like, find another. Like, why do I? Why does it need to be something like that? It just felt horrible. Um, I love RuPaul's Drag Race. Sure, I do as well, very deeply. And one of one of my favourite parts of RuPaul's Drag Race, there is a point to this, is RuPaul's sayings. You know when he's I know having, which one you're going to say. You, the broken bone one. Oh no no okay. no. Okay. So. Um, he's always at the work table saying, "How are you feeling?" Oh no no, I don't know. And he goes, <laughs> and he gives it. And so. There was one particularly emotional time where he said, you know, he sort of cries but doesn't cry. Yeah. You know when a bone breaks, you know the strongest part? It's where it heals. Yeah. Okay. And I love that because it made me laugh, but at the same time I went, oh my God, he's absolutely yeah. right. <laughs> he's absolutely right. I think every shitty thing that has ever happened to me, as long as I have learned from it, mm. it's the ones I haven't learned from that I'm annoyed at. And I, I genuinely think I didn't enter any form of maturity till I hit 30. I was a total twat. And it was only after I hit about 30 I started just being fucking intelligent about <laughs> myself. Yeah. But every time something bad's happened, if I've learned from it, and I have, I, I've possibly become less, more distrustful, which is a bad mm. thing, but a good thing. People closer to me, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. In terms of mental health, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that was a very formative relationship in your life. Mm. A very difficult, abusive, horrible relationship. From that, though, and how you got out of it, a did the show help? 
right to get it out yeah and b is it something now that you can use as a building block to positivity because you're you're happy yeah. now yeah from listening to your I always, I always hate I listen to your podcast oh killer no filler it's amazing and <laughs> things that make me laugh like a dream <laughs> so sorry it's um Rachel's occasionally weird sexual confessions oh my god about things she's yeah. done yeah spicy stuff really bizarre <laughs> stuff and then your slight stories about your partner oh yeah which are lovely and your Instagram <laughs> photographs of lovely things he's done and he's all of that kind sweet. of stuff so yeah. that's the two things did it help you it was horrible and traumatic even doing the show about the mm. traumatic thing but did it help and can you see something positive that's come out of that yes I think I'm glad I did it for myself because huge part of it it was part of the uh, abuse was uh, sort of there was ongoing stuff on social media from them about me and I just I Michelle Obama did when they go low you go high so I didn't acknowledge it at all but that meant there was one narrative out there so a big part of the show was reclaiming my narrative mm-hmm. and going I haven't spoken up because that's not the way I want to do it this is how I'm going to do it I'm going to do it on stage I'm going to make it funny and that's how we're going to get on through on my it. own terms in my own exactly, place exactly exactly yes. that and it felt like it had taken it back and it had empowered me to tell my own story so that was a huge part of it and also just seeing women who were either in it or just past it, seeing seeing them like broken little birds, recognizing myself and being like, I'm so far past the worst of this, and just telling it every night. It, it did feel like I was getting stronger, although it was a very hard month. And then I had a break, and then I and um, then I toured it in the spring, and then I went. Well, I, I did a little run at Soho in February, and uh, my poor partner had to deal with me just being fully mental again because it just stirred everything up. Yeah. And I suddenly, you know, someone I'd, compu- I'd put from my head and, and close the box on. And I, you suddenly remember when you're on stage, like, oh, yeah, I didn't make any of that. This, this happened. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I remember you said that and he did this and that. And then that person said that. And, you you know, all the, I'm having that conversation on, in my brain while I'm doing the show. So, I, you know, I got a fu- fully crackers again for a, a week. <laughs> uh, and then was like, yeah, and he, he was great about it. He's been brilliant because he's kind of, you know, he's been around while it's all been happening because we've been friends for a very long time and saw it. Um, so he's very patient. So I do feel like I've moved past... I was... I cannot tell you how glad I was to end the tour. Yeah. I was like, I can't keep doing this. Like, okay, it's not the thing. Like, if they were like, let's push it into autumn, I'd be like, I just yeah. can't do it. And I don't think I would ever put myself through touring a show as hard as that again. Like, I definitely want this one to be... Was, I say I want it to be fluffy. It's about non-offending paedophile, so it's not a laugh riot. Well, I mean... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not the director of your fringe show, Kerry, but if you're wanting an upbeat, light-hearted one you can tour across the country, I'm just saying, maybe not that. <laughs> Can't wait to say that to regional arts centres. What I always, what I always did was, the first part of my tour show, first 45 minutes, was all... Yeah. Then they'd go to the interval, have a glass of wine and go, oh, she's the great, isn't she? And then they'd go, right, here's the second half. No, I've got you. And that was always about some form of weird uh, feminist kind of um, thing yeah. that, they, that they would then listen to, to be fair. Exactly. I mean, I always, I always feel, as comedians... Not everyone's ready for everything. Yeah. And I think uh, the thing I spend most of the time on my uh, when I write shows is the structure. Mm. Just to make sure that it's all... And you must have had to do that when you're telling a story like yeah. you did of how is this going to work? How do I not 
Well, for a start, you're talking about something that could really... I don't like the word trigger. Yeah. But I will use it to yeah. trigger people. Definitely stir stuff up in people. Well, that's what I actually think structure is, is, uh, is so important. I think structure is you holding an audience member's hand and it's how hard you hold onto it and lead them through the path. So structure is there to, to keep them following everything that's going on and sometimes it's there so you can squeeze their hand and go, it's going to be all right. So like you say, like, so the show I'm doing at the moment, the stuff about non-offending paedophiles comes probably about 45 minutes in, 40 minutes in, because I have to prove to them that I'm really funny and, and push the boundaries in, you know, like, it, we'll go, just, you know, I'm going to sort of dance around the edges and we're all going to be fine with everything. And um, before I go, I'm going to talk about this. It's, it, you can't open on that stuff. It's too difficult. <laughs> like, it's too difficult for everyone. Yeah, like, do you know yeah. what I mean? To just be like, right, pedos. <laughs> so it's the late commerce No, take a seat. You've not done a lot yet. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's about being responsible to them yeah. and their experience as well when you were having um a particularly difficult time um i talk about law and order special victims unit simply because i love it because there are 17 or 18 series of it oh great they generally always catch the pedophile in the end or the right. rapist in the end mariska hargitay is just glowing at every possible <laughs> opportunity and there's just loads of them and i can sit down and i can watch them one after another and if i'm having difficulty same with drag race I just watch it. Yeah. Is there anything that you did or do if you're in that, if you know that you're getting into that headspace that cheers you up, that distracts you, that does something? Uh, yeah, if I've got time, I will go to Wales. Uh, so I grew up on a farm in Wales that, that my family still have. So I will go there. Like, if I can physically go there, it just is immediately, everything lifts off and I feel like I'm on holiday. I feel very safe there. Um, and I, you know, I just can like recharge everything. But if I'm, if it's at the fringe, like I think food is a big one. Is like I can, you know, I can eat myself happy. <laughs> um, my director. So a weird thing as well. Last year, it actually ended up being a good thing. But my partner was filming something, so just wasn't up for the whole run. So I was on my own in the bedroom where a lot of the stuff I talk about had happened because I've been staying in that same bedroom for years and years so a lot of the really horrible conversations with that happened in the other relationship i was like oh yeah i was looking at this ceiling when it happened such a stupid thing to do but my director came up his accommodation fell through so he just ended up staying in the bed with me most nights like morecambe and wise mm -hmm. and we'd go should we get a brown buffet it's, it's all the brown food so it's like onion Lovely. rings Lovely. you know yeah like a, yeah. bread and mushrooms all that a stuff a plate of bees exactly more. <laughs> exactly yeah. and and queer eye something that's relentlessly oh, yeah. manipulative and uplifting <laughs> I want to be manipulated. Oh, queer, queer Eye is just extra. I started watching the other series, uh, the new series, and after about two minutes, they just went, I'll just go and get the hankies. And I was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> it's a teacher. Um, it's, it's a strange thing because having been, I think, it wasn't called gaslighting 19 years ago. Yeah, that's the other thing. You know, because it wasn't, there was no name for it apart from... Uh, my girlfriend at the time was a, a lying manipulative bitch. No, there was a word for it. It was that you were mental. That's true. When I knew she was cheating on me. Exactly. And I knew she was taking drugs. And I knew she was doing everything else that she was doing at that particular time. Um, it's something which I think... One of the reasons why The Fringe is special and beautiful is it gives the opportunity to tell these stories. Without question. Mm. And they are worth doing. And whilst you might not return to something quite 
Because that sounds like it was a deeply personal, long-term thing you talked about. You don't regret it. No, I don't. Because also, well, yeah, the good thing to come out of it, other than, like, talking on stage every night about the upside at the end, which is that I have this great partner who has just... Because uh, yeah, I sort of talk about my friend throughout it, so I've had my back, and that is who I'm with now. Um, is was like remind every talking about him on stage every night was like God, I'm so lucky. I've got he's such a good, kind man. It was sort of like remind you how much you love him every night. And also, I remember my agent said this. When I was really struggling. I was like four or five days in. I there's a first fringe where I was like, I don't think I can get through it. Three days in, I couldn't remember the show. It was crap. I was the thing stopping it being good. And then I just sort of like forced myself and it, it w- was all right. And she said, she was like, you're going to have a life-changing fringe. Like, your life will change after this. You just need to push through this. And and she's right. Like, just the the level of the work I was getting changed, you know, everything changed. Like, mm-hmm. the conversations I was having with audiences, like, my, the tour I just did off the back of that, like, I... All I know is in terms of money, and it's a bit gross to talk about money, but, like, I made more than triple what I made on the year before. Yeah. So it was just... And that's, like, not off the back of it. I hadn't really done much television there, so it's not as easy an answer as that. It's, like, I'd created something that people wanted to see that resonated, and I'd done it in the kind of way that they went, I want to see that comedian. And then that stuff does lead to, you know, telly and radio and all the lovely stuff that mean that, that more people come yeah. to see you. And, yeah, just it changed my life. And, by the way, I don't think it's gross to talk about money at all. Maria Bamford famously always discloses what she earns because that means that you, as a comedian, know if you're earning, this, you're earning the right amount next time you do a show. Oh, that's interesting, So yeah. I always tell people if they ask me what I earn for things because the, that is the only way you and I will ever know yeah. if we're being offered the same deal there as there yeah. as there. And so when Maria... Bamford does it it's not saying I've earned this much money it's so that we all know whether or not we're getting ripped off yeah that's interesting and I think it's I'm happy to I think it's an important thing I don't think we do it enough no I think you're right that there's this weird thing with money isn't there especially with me because like money was where all the arguments came from when I was growing up so I find it to talk about but like yeah, you're totally right. Actually, what we should be all doing is saying, I was in this venue, this is how much it cost, this is how much I earned on a tour. So on a tour, am I getting the same split as you're getting? Yeah, exactly. So I think, personally speaking, I always disclose what I earn. Yeah. And it's purely so, if you and I do the team, same television show, yeah. are we earning the same amount of money? And if we're not, why are we not? And if you know how much he's earning, yeah. how much is he earning? Yeah. And I think that's the way we do it. Yeah, Personally. I think you're right. We've got to start. We've all we've all got to start disclosing a little bit more, because I have a terrible suspicion that there's some things going on. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. So I'm happy. All I'm saying is I don't think it's gross at all to talk about it because it's important when people are when you're thinking about is it worthwhile even doing these kind of shows? They do sell. People do want to come and yeah. see these shows. You don't need to do a very vanilla mundane slightly sexist, slightly racist show to sell tickets in this country. Yeah. You can do really interesting shows that are commercially successful. Yes. I think. I think so. Well, that's the interesting thing is, isn't it, as the, as the audience of... As the audience evolves, and that's in terms of the kind of people who think that comedy is now something they can go and enjoy, and in terms of, like, people's tastes. 
So it's before it was like everyone's understanding of a one-man show was just straight stand-up, and now people understand. Even my parents now understand like, oh no, you can go and hear a story, mm-hmm. and like I think that's I think it's really interesting. And you know, if you just go and do stand-up, absolutely amazing, great. There's there's loads of audience for that, absolutely and we can all enjoy it. Absolutely, there is. But if you want to give a bit of yourself, then that's okay as well. I always like to leave the audience with a little bit of me. Whether they like it or not. Kind <laughs> that of sounds like, like a DNA thing. Kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> kind of like... Uh, I want them to wake up in the middle of the night thinking of my face. Lovely. That's what, that's what I want them to think about. I was wanting to, with my shows, I, I was like, I want them to have a conversation about what I've spoken about afterwards. Mm. And go, I didn't know that. Like, yeah. you know, so I always try and put like smuggle facts that you're like oh my god in it yeah so like what is the thing that they all go and talk about and i can pick it i know what it is in this new one as well because my friend said oh that thing that you said i keep thinking about that i'm like aha that's the thing um final you get to see the last thing you want to see you can see whatever you like um about anything oh about anything anything you can see whatever you want this, I, at the end of a podcast, generally the podcast hosts will do a lovely summing up where they go, and that's me talking to Kenny Pritchard-McLean today about gaslighting. And, and I, I prefer, you should be the one that... Um, uh, okay. Um, I've got a podcast, you can have a listen to that. Yeah. Uh, called All Killer No Filler. It's very good. Yeah, it's about serial killers. And if that's not your vibe, I've got one about musicals as well. Which, which is, is very good. Yeah, the musical podcast. We come on it. I, last time I met Jade Adams, I said, there are, I think there are three or four podcasts I dream of being on. Uh, one is All Killer No Filler. Great. Because I've actually worked with serial killers, yeah. as you've discovered. We so should do a special I've actually done, I've done that with Sister Helen Prejean from Dead Man Walking. So I've oh done it. Oh my God. A musical. Yeah. Uh, good, I really want to do. Um, I actually quite fancy, I quite fancy doing um, Drunk Women Solving Crime. Yeah. But I worry, after I've had a drink, I need the toilet a lot. Uh. So I worry I'll get, <laughs> I, worry I'll, I worry if I'll be able to get through it. Drunk woman repeatedly getting up, using the toilet and sitting yeah, down again. Honestly, that's why I don't drink. One of the reasons I don't drink anymore is genuinely, my bladder that was the size of a hamster is now, I mean, grape sized. <laughs> and I need to go to the toilet a lot. Um, uh, Kerry, I was just wondering, could you tell me how I could find you on social media? Yes, uh, I'm on Twitter at Kerry Pritchard MC, uh, Facebook. I'm on everything really. Got a website. Instagram. I, I love the gram. Absolutely love the gram. If you want to see pictures of me looking very bad after the gym, because I'm trying to. Oh, I like them. Yes. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to combat everything. Yep. Like it's it's hard. Like I have to work quite hard to be this chunky, and I want to show the reality of it. Yeah. Um, and and probably pictures of my dog and cat as well. And anything to do with Wales. And what's your Instagram name? Oh, uh, Kerry underscore Pritchard underscore McLean, I think. Oh, that's Yeah, snappy. it's a lot of it. Thanks, Kerry. Thank you for listening to Mrs Brightside. If you like the show, why not subscribe? We're available everywhere you can download podcasts. And if you've already subscribed, why not tell a friend? Next week, I'll be talking to... Marcus Brigstock. I mean... I know I said it at the time, but I'll say it again. You saw me in a state of deep crisis and took me out for lunch. I was in a really bad way. And we didn't even know each other all that well. But you just went, you, lunch, now. And I know that you were okay at that time. Or you were so not okay, you needed someone else. But it doesn't matter. But it was a game changer. It really was. It made such a difference to me. And it's really interesting how... Our family of comedians, some of whom snipe at each other and compete and all the rest of it, actually take good care of each other. 
Susan Kalman's Mrs Brightside is hosted, appropriately enough, by me, Susan Kalman. The producer is Benjamin Sutton and is a BBC Studios production for Acast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 